First Corinthians chapter one, and uh, so yeah, if you guys are, um, you can be dismissed to the herd. So our four years old through second grade, you guys can head out. So, First Corinthians chapter one, starting in verse nine through verse seventeen, it's on page nine fifty two um, in the Black Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, man, we'd encourage you to grab one of those and and take it home with you um, and use it as God's word. Let's let those guys get on out of here. Will you stand with me as we read this? To, as I read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 to 17. It says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the wisdom from it. I thank you for the man of God that's going to teach from it this morning that is going to proclaim your message to us, Father. Uh, Lord, just help him to be clear in his thoughts, uh, to be bold in his presentation of the gospel this morning um, as he preaches to us. And in your son's name I pray, amen. You can be seated. As I said, it's, uh, it's awesome to be here. Just, uh, it's a pleasure. I love being able to come here after just spending a, a week of just um, the opportunity that you guys afford me is the ability to be able to sit and study the Word of God. When you just think about that, that is just, it's, it's a pleasure. That's just um, unfathomable. It's a, it's a gift that you guys have given me. Um, and so to be able to come on a Sunday morning and be able to open up God's Word and look at the text, it's just Um, a sweet joy that I have to be able to um, lead you through what I believe God is showing us from the text. So if you'll remember, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're looking at the first two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Last week, we started a new series called Rooted in the Gospel, Rooted in Christ. What does it look like to be a people in thought, the way we speak, what we do in life, relationships, work, where we live, where we breathe, where we, where we go, where we find ourselves doing, what does it look to be a people who anchor ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ? How it's come to us in salvation, and then how that gospel applies to us not only in salvation, but how it applies to us for the rest of life. So what I want to do, again, is pray for you as well. Um, you can never pray too much. And so what I want to do is just pray that the Spirit of God would just come and it would just land on our hearts. That as we hear the Word proclaimed, that the Spirit of the living God would come and He would speak through me and use me, His servant, so that as the words come out of my mouth, it would land on your ears and not just be things you hear and just things you know, but it would be words that if you, if you, so to speak, if you allow this illustration to travel down into your heart to change your heart, and to draw you to Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll take off looking at this next section of text, verses 10 through 17 of chapter 1. So let's pray. God, the cross of Christ 
is full of power. And the king who died upon that cross is our Lord. So I pray that King Jesus would have his way among his people this morning. God, come, inhabit the gathering of your people, and may the proclamation of your word do its sanctifying work in our hearts. May the word of God prick our hearts where we are drifting towards sin. Would the word of God come and be a good rebuke to us? Not because you hate us, but because you love us. And where we are striving by the power of the Spirit of God, and we are seeing your favor and your blessing and your goodness, may we not turn to boasting in ourselves because of of the good that we see coming, but may our hearts be encouraged to still make much of Christ even more because of these good things that we see. God, do this work now. For your name's sake and for your glory. Amen. So as I said, we are in a series, new series. It's going to be a five-week series. We are in week two. Last week we started off by looking at chapter one, verses one through nine. We noted that Paul had received a letter concerning some problems in the Corinthian church and a bad report came to him further highlighting the issues at hand. The Corinthians were in a bad way, and they were marked by various difficulties. There was just a lot of stuff that was awry in their lives. They were proclaiming the gospel. The gospel had come to them. The gospel had been applied to them, had been applied to their hearts. But in a sense, their actions, the things they were allowing in their midst, the things that they were encouraging, the things that they weren't seeking to grow in holiness in, were actually speaking a false gospel. So, Paul comes along and is encouraging them, correcting them, rebuking them, exhorting them, because marked among them were such things as divisions in the church, people rallying to certain parties. There was sexual immorality that was being highlighted as a good thing. There were lawsuits. There were Christians suing other Christians within the church. There was issues of marriage, issues of divorce, so on and so on. The gospel had been preached to them and they received it unto salvation. The gospel had taken root in their hearts. But the forward march of gospel progress in their lives had taken a turn for the worse. Paul saw all of this. He heard it from reports. He read it in a letter. And he was calling the Corinthians back to center. He reminded them that their call of salvation is rooted in God. Their hope for growth in holiness and dealing with all of these various issues that they were dealing with in their church was rooted in the good news of the gospel that had come to them and changed them. This was their hope. This is where they had to stand. This was their foundation. They were to be rooted in the gospel identity that God had called them to. The Corinthians' calling was rooted in God, and this calling gave them a gospel identity as believers, as well as gave them a mission that God was going to equip them for. They were saved from God's wrath, they were saved from their sin, and they were saved to good works. We capped off that whole idea last week by looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where we looked at those first three verses 
of Ephesians 2 and how we notice that there were identifiers in the um, Ephesians life saying, you were marked this way. You were dead in your sins and transgressions, but God came. He saved you. He called you unto salvation. The gospel was applied to your heart. Now you have a new identity. You're no longer marked by the identifiers of an old life, but you're marked by the identifiers of a new life. You're a new creation. You have a gospel identity. And then we went and looked at those first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we saw that Paul is showing this to the Corinthians, saying because you have this gospel identity, you also have a call to live out that identity. Because of who you are in Christ, there are things that are right for you to do, and there are things that are wrong for you to do. Gospel identity gives us mission. But this week, Paul is going to shift gears. Now that he's anchored their identity and mission in the gospel, he's going to turn and show them how this gospel identity ought to lead to unity. Unity amongst the brothers. Unity amongst those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Unity amongst those who are marked out as those who belong to the church of God that is in Corinth. Because the Corinthian believers were called into fellowship with Jesus they were to display that fellowship through their relationships with one another. So as we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at verses 9 through 17. I want you to notice this main idea. A person rooted in gospel identity walks in unity. A person rooted in gospel identity walks in unity. And we're going to see this main idea flush itself out in these three ways. In verse 9, we're going to see that gospel identity is rooted in fellowship. Gospel identity is rooted in fellowship. In verses 10 through 12, we're going to see that gospel identity destroys division and calls for unity. Gospel identity destroys division and calls for unity. Then in verses 13 through 17, we're going to see gospel identity prioritizes our allegiance. So our identity that is rooted in fellowship, our identity which destroys division and calls for unity, and our identity that prioritizes now our allegiance, whom are we to um, come alongside and give our allegiance to, all of these things Paul is using, presenting to the Corinthians, he's now addressing one of the first issues of the church that had come to him through report and through letter, and he's going to show them Corinthians, a person that is rooted in gospel identity, will walk in unity. So first, gospel identity is rooted in fellowship. So take your copy of the scriptures, look at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. Paul wrote this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So before we move on to the new text, it will do us some good to look at verse 9, because this is a verse that we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 9. But as you'll see here in a minute, as I'm going to show, verse 9 stands as a very much as a, as a gateway verse. There's portions of that verse that draw to a conclusion the arguments that he was making in verses 1 through 8, but it is also in verse 9, Paul's going to use some language that is going to come along and be the door through which he walks to go and address the issue of division and quarreling that is marking out the Corinthians in verses 10 through 17. The idea that God is faithful 
from verse 9 brings to a close the argument that Paul was making in verses 1 through 8. God is faithful to bring to pass everything that Paul had been telling them so far. Their call of salvation, their call to mission, their equipping with spiritual gifts was all anchored in the faithfulness of God. Paul was calling them to know that the Lord their God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. That comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 7. In highlighting the faithfulness of God, Paul was stressing that their ability to strive in holiness and their hope of persevering to the end was found in the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. The God of Israel was a faithful God, always reliable, always true to Himself, who could be counted on to fulfill all of His promises, God's faithfulness in having called and redeemed them now serves as the grounds for Paul's hope of their final salvation to the end. God is faithful. And he was anchoring this on this truth in this conversation because the rest of the letter, he's going to constantly be coming back and going, you have this thing in your midst and it ought not to be. You are thinking this way and it ought not to be. These are things that are identifying you and your actions are bespeaking a false gospel. And what he's doing is he's planting a flag of hope at the very beginning of the conversation saying this, God is faithful. The hope of change, of moving away from these wrong things, Is it rooted in you? It's rooted in the faithfulness of God. It's rooted in the faithfulness of God. The Corinthian believers were recipients of God's effectual call. Called into fellowship with the Son. The reference of fellowship is to what took place at their conversion. So when you look at that second half of that verse, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What He's doing is closing that door and swinging into another one. This verse serves as a gateway verse, as I said. And verse 9 is the hinge that closes the door on Paul's opening comments and swings open into the body of the letter where he goes on, now saying... now. In, in, in his mind, can saying this, now that I've laid the foundation that we need to stand on, we can now turn our attention to the issues at hand. These believers were in fellowship with Christ. And these believers are not only in Christ, and as such, freed from the guilt of their sins, but they are also in fellowship with Christ, and are privileged to commune with Him as well. And it is here in this truth the truth of their fellowship with Christ that Paul transitions from his introduction to the problem at hand. The Corinthians were marked by fellowship with Jesus. But when it came to the other believers in Corinth, they were marked by division. And as we will see, the disconnect between their gospel identity, the disconnect between the vertical union, the vertical fellowship that those individual believers had with Christ, and then when they looked at other fellow believers who had that same vertical relationship with Christ, Paul is saying what ought not to be is this, you having a right fellowship with God, but then having wrong fellowship with believers. He was saying that ought not to be. There's a disconnect there. And so what he's going to do is turn and seek to address what is going on here by turning their mind to unity. Gospel identity is rooted in, in fellowship with Christ. 
Second, verses 10 through 12. Gospel identity destroys division and calls for unity. Look in your copy of the scriptures there. Verses 10, 11, 12. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now with the transition fully made, Paul is going to make an appeal to the Corinthians. There's an ugly truth in their midst. They are known by their division and quarreling. They are not known by their fellowship and unity. How they are acting is not in line with the truth of the gospel that has been applied to their hearts. Who they were in Christ and how they were living that out was misaligned. Confessionally, what they were saying and functionally what they were doing was not matching up. So confessionally, they could say that, yes, we are a redeemed people. We have been redeemed. The gospel has been applied to our hearts. The preaching of the gospel has changed us. They once were separated from God, but now they had fellowship with Him. But functionally, with their actions, they were speaking something different. With their mouth, they could say fellowship. But with their actions, they were saying division. And whenever there is any part of our life where our actions don't align with what we say, then there is a betrayal that's going on. We've been tricked. For we say one thing, then we do something else, and sometimes we don't necessarily see the disconnect. And that's what was going on in the Corinthians' lives. They could say, yes, fellowship with Christ, But then with their actions, what they were doing was saying the gospel hadn't worked itself out to the point to where they could say, because of fellowship here, I have fellowship here. What they were saying is, I have fellowship here, and there is division here. And Paul is coming along and saying, the two can't coexist like that. See, there will be a time for division. The exclusivity of the gospel necessarily divides. If there were to be a group of people who were to come into this church and seek to join this church, and we were to ask them, is Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life? Can anyone come to the Father outside of Christ? And if this person or this group or this people were to come along and say, yes, people can be made right with God outside of Jesus Christ, then what we'd have to say is we are going to have division with you. Because that's not the gospel truth. The truth is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. This doctrine, Jesus, when it comes to doctrines of salvific nature, of salvation, of what it takes to be made right with God, those things necessarily divide. But the Corinthians' division was of a different sort. They weren't dividing because there were people who were trying to be a part of the Corinthian church who were, we're Jesus people, he's the only way of salvation, and we are the, oh well, there's other people out, there's other ways outside of Jesus that you can have some sort of salvation. That wasn't the root of their division, it was a division of a different sort. The believers in Corinth were dividing into parties with their various teachers as rallying points. And this division and quarreling was in some way being carried out in the name of wisdom. And these quarrels took the form of boasting and mere men. 
the Corinthian church was divided into four factions, each having its own emphasis, following its own leader, and acting in antagonism to the other three. So when you look at verse 12 there, what were the four divisions? You had people coming along and saying this, well, I follow Paul, I'm of the Paul party. Then you had people saying, well, I follow Apollos. You had the Apollos party. Then you had the Cephas party. That's Peter. And then you had the people who were like, I'm of the Jesus party. Right? We're a little bit better than the rest. See, those who belong to the Paul party, those who claim to follow Paul, did so possibly because of his emphasis on his ministry to the Gentiles. So you had some people could step back and go, man, I like Paul pretty low-key. We're going to see here in a couple of weeks that Paul says, I come pretty low-key. I didn't come with lofty speech and wisdom proclaiming my gospel to you. I'm an apostle who's called to the ministry of the Gentiles. So you might have had some people going, man, I like it. Low-key, he's preaching the gospel to us. I'm a Paul guy. Then you have the Apollos party. There, there were those who claimed to follow him. He was distinguished for his literary culture and eloquence. If you go look in the book of Acts, the kind of language that was talked about Apollos was he was sharp in Scripture. He could connect the dots. He was eloquent in his oration. He was, I mean, he was good, good speaker. I mean, people just came to listen. The guy could deliver well, and he knew what he was talking about. It wasn't just fluff. The Corinthians were enamored with wisdom. Apollos had the appearance of wisdom, sharp, well-cultured, eloquent, and they saw, some in Corinth saw this as their guy. You had the Cephas party, the followers of Cephas, or Peter, placed emphasis on him as their teacher, possibly because of his ministry to the Jews. And then you had those of that super elite party, the Christ party. Most likely, these were a group of people who formed no distinct group at all, but who in their own attempt to rise above the rest, fell into their own brand of spiritual elitism that in the end made them no better than the others. Right? So they could step back and go, man, within the church I see people like dividing and quarreling over Paul and quarreling over Cephas and quarreling over Apollos. Man, those guys are just boasting in mere men. So, so what we're going to do is we're just going to be Jesus people. So they come over and they are huddling with other Jesus people. And they are coming together going, well, look how much better we are because of who we have as our center. They are holding at center these mere men, these religious people teachers, but we're holding to Jesus. But in acting that way, they are falling into the same trap as the other people because by necessity, what they're doing is saying, because we believe this way and because you don't believe this way, it just formed another group, another, another group of division there in Corinth. All of these things, these various parties, these divisions, these quarrelings, this misspeaking of the gospel as it works out in the life of the Corinthians, All of this was what was going on in Corinth. And the trueness of their gospel identity wasn't working itself out functionally among the church. What was true of all the believers in Corinth was that they all had a vertical fellowship, a vertical union with God through Christ. And because this was true, their horizontal relationships with one another were to be marked by this same sort of fellowship the same sort of union. Their identity in Christ was to lead to unity with other believers. But instead of their gospel identity destroying division, division was somehow flourishing and being allowed to exist. 
As I said, we'll see this a little bit next week when we look at verses 18 through 31. When we leave this chunk of Scripture, what you see is a lot of this, this wisdom language, where Paul's calling them out, oh, you guys are very wise, aren't you? Your, your human wisdom sure trumps God, doesn't it? And what he's not doing is saying these things because that's what he believes. He's saying these things in a very pejorative sense where he's coming along, oh, you guys are so wise, aren't you? With a very sort of sarcastic, snarky tone coming to them. Because somehow what they were doing was going, yeah, gospel's come to me. Well, yeah, an obvious gospel outworking is this. Well, I'm going to form into a group against this guy. And Paul says, no, there's no wisdom in that. There's no wisdom in that. The gospel amongst believers in a church ought not to divide. The gospel ought to pull us together in unity. The gospel ought to pull us together in unity. So Paul is going to make a very, very strong appeal. He's going to come to them and he's going to seek his appeal in the highest name that he could possibly do. When you look at the beginning of verse 10, he comes to you, or he comes to the Corinthians and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, and I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice the form of his appeal. He doesn't appeal to his apostolic authority. He doesn't exert his right to demand that they agree with him. I mean, he could. He has been commissioned by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He is an apostle of Jesus himself. He could show up and he could say, listen, my way or the highway. He could show up and say, I am an apostle. You are to live out your life in this way. Why? Because I say so. But he doesn't do that. He comes and he appeals to them not in his name and the right that he has to be able to speak in this way. Rather, he goes right to the source, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and makes his appeal in the name of Jesus. Paul is urging the Corinthians to conform their behavior to the gospel, not as law, but as a response to the grace that is in Christ. This is why the appeal is made by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that the unity that Paul was calling for wasn't some sort of theoretical unity. Rather, it was a call to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It was a call that the Corinthians would feel the same way that he does about unity. Feel the same way that he does about them having fellowship with each other. To be of the same opinion that he does have concerning the wrongness of division. Paul is making his argument very clear. He shows up. He goes right into these first three verses. 10, 11, and 12. And he makes this argument. Your gospel identity ought to destroy division, and it should be calling you to unity. Agree with me on this, brothers, that that is a right gospel application in your life for those of you, for those of us who have had the good news of Jesus Christ applied to our hearts. Thirdly, gospel identity prioritizes our allegiance. It prioritizes our allegiance. Look at verses 13 through 17 in your Bible. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. 
so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The gospel identity that we've been given from God prioritizes our allegiance. So when we look at verse 13 there of this new section, Paul is really laying out the logical extension of their party divisions. The party divisions were, well, I'm a a Peter guy. I'm an Apollos guy. No, I'm I'm a Christ guy. Well, I'm a Paul guy. And what he does is he picks himself... And the people that were making that argument, well, I follow Paul. Paul's, Paul's my homie, right? You've, you've got, like, the Jesus is my homeboy shirts. Back in Corinth, they probably had, the, like, the Paul is my homeboy shirts. Like, Paul, pow. These are the Paul guys. I mean, this is his crew. But he comes along and says, guys, that ought not to be. Because if you are so willing to divide into groups over religious teachers, mere men, what you're doing is moving Christ out of the center, taking whoever your religious leader, whoever this person is that you're holding to, whatever group you say that you belong to, and where Christ was at the center, you move him out, you take Paul and you put him in the middle, and when you put someone else in the center of your allegiance besides Jesus, you are giving yourself over to someone who is not worthy. You're following somebody who's false, who cannot be the center, who cannot be the hope. He quickly destroys any validity the Corinthians might put forward for their divisions by rattling off a set of three questions. And Paul uses these questions to display the absurdity of their divisions. First, he asks this, Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? And the answer that should come back is like, well, no, I don't think he is. And Paul would say, no. No, he's not. Christ is incapable of division. As there is one head, there can be but one body. As there is but one Christ, there can be but one church. Paul exposes the absurdity of their division by exposing how their way of thinking could never be. Just as my body only has one head, so the local body of believers in Corinth was to have one head, Jesus Christ. But through their absurd divisions, they became a four-headed monster, really. You had the local body of believers, the Corinthian church, instead of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning at the head, they booted him out and said, well, the ones who are ruling our church isn't the one head with his singular rule, Jesus Christ, it's well, the Paul people and the Cephas people and the Apollos people and the Christ people. They lost sight of the center. The nucleus of every church has to be Jesus. But for the Corinthians, Jesus had faded into the background and their various religious teachers had taken his place. So second, following up that question of, is Christ divided? Paul asked this, well, was Paul crucified for you? Paul wants to know, did, did I go to the cross for you? Was my body broken for you? Was my blood shed for you? Did I redeem you? Were you purchased by my blood? The answer would have come back as an obvious no. 
Then to drive the point home even more, he asked this third question right on the heels of the first and the second. Well, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And again, they would have to answer no. Paul was not the object of their faith. And it wasn't Paul's name they confessed upon their baptism. To be baptized in the name of someone means that the one being baptized has turned over allegiance to the one who was named. But since they were not baptized into Paul's name, by that very fact, they could not say, I follow Paul. All three of these questions, with their obvious answers of no, came as three strikes against their misplaced allegiance. Therefore, Paul goes on to thank God that he baptized no one in Corinth except Crispus, Gaius, and the household of Stephanus. He is thankful because this extremely low number of baptized persons really just goes to prove his point. He can stand up and go, look, I mean, I'm not trying to gather people to myself. My calling in life, because I have received a gospel identity because God called me to salvation and saved me, He gave me a calling to go and preach the gospel, not baptize a bunch of people so I can have a bunch of Paul disciples running around. Christ didn't send Him to baptize. And besides, baptism isn't even the point at this moment. His point has been to jolt the Corinthians into seeing the folly of their allegiance to mere human teachers. He did not come to baptize, but he did come to preach the gospel and magnify the power of the cross. In switching from baptism in verse 17 to preaching the gospel, Paul gives us another gateway verse and sets us up for what we'll look at next week. He closes the door on this idea like, listen, this is just absurd. I mean, this is not your way of thinking, this division that's among you, the way that you guys are even encouraging this in a bit, it ought not to be. And then what he does is like he did in verse 9 and verse 17, we'll touch on this next week, he closes out that argument saying, absurd, this is nuts, it can't be done in the name of wisdom. There is no wisdom in rallying to various teachers and saying these are the who are the heads of our party. And then what he's going to do is go through and show us where real wisdom lies. And that's in the power of a crucified Christ for salvation. So we'll look at next week. So, in all of this, how are we to respond? How are we to respond? See, the Corinthians were a people with a new gospel identity, and their rootedness in this new identity was to spring forth the fruit of unity. Because of who they were, The fruit that should have been coming out of them in this particular instance was unity. They were all to have the same mind and same opinion that division was dumb and in no way did it promote the gospel among fellow believers. At its core, their division was a misunderstanding of the gospel. Their union with Christ was to evidence itself by means of unity amongst the saints. A person rooted in gospel identity walks in unity. So how exactly in our local, local church does this play out? Because if you, I mean, if you just stand back, I mean, I've been here three and a half months, and as far as I know, there's no, one, no one's wearing like, Davis is my homeboy shirt. I don't think. If there is, I need a little cut of the proceeds there. Um, I don't think there's anyone like, you know, Chuck's my man crew going around. Or like, Tom, Tom's my guy. Like, I, don't, I don't sense that that's going on here. 
like it was here, where people were like dividing to their four corners of the church, where, you know, Tom here, Charles here, John here, Brian here, damn, ah, my guys. No, I don't, I don't think that's going on here. So the question is, so, so how does this idea of a person rooted in gospel identity walks in unity, how, how does that work itself out here at Delta? How, how does that work itself out amongst me, the elders, you, the deacons, you to you, you to the deacons, you to Ellen. How, how does this big web of us congregating here, how does that work itself out? I think it can play itself out in two ways. The first is in ways that we might unintentionally divide Christ. Remember, the point that he comes back to in verse 13 is this. When he goes through and says, you guys are quarreling, there is division, and this is what your division is, so he doesn't leave them to guess, well, what exactly is Paul talking about? Paul says, this is is your source of your division right here. You're dividing into four groups. That's the source of your division. And then what he does is says this, hey, Christ isn't divided, therefore your divisions are, are not healthy, they're not right, they're not wise. So I don't think that's going on here, but what I do think could unintentionally be going on is we divide Christ somehow in our hearts and our heart attitudes. And so we'll get to that here in a couple minutes. And the second way is how we can drift from a unified vision of what Christ, our head, the center of our church, has called us to as believers. When we drift from that vision of what God has called us to then there can be some unnecessary division going on where we are not unified on that central task of driving home the vision that Jesus has given this local body. So if you will remember, the Corinthians lost sight of who was to be at the center. Instead of holding Jesus at the center and cherishing him as the one head who rules over the body of believers at Corinth, they replaced Jesus. Jesus out. For some, it was Paul in. Jesus out. For some, it was Apollos. Peter. Christ. They were pulling out Jesus, putting in these other believers. They ditched the singular headship of Jesus over their body of believers for a four-headed monster, and all of it was done in the name of wisdom. See, if we aren't careful to remain vigilant, see, see what we're doing here, like, what I'm about to say isn't because I see this. But what I'm about to say is more of a preemptive strike sort of application. Because you have to know this. The division that marked the Corinthians, Satan was very glad with. They thought they were doing Jesus a favor by doing this. But they were actually dividing and there wasn't unity among them. It was actions bespeaking a false gospel to the people around them in Corinth. And Satan is very glad for that. And my hope and desire in saying this application isn't because, hey, you guys are guilty of this right now. It's more of a preemptive strike saying we need to be on guard. We need to be vigilant about where we're going. Because you have to know the enemy would love for division to creep in to this church. See, if we aren't careful to remain vigilant at keeping Christ at the center of all that we do, then Delta can easily run the same risk that was present in the Corinthian church. I'm not suggesting that we are in the same place as the Corinthian church, or somehow, as I said, we have the Tom guys, and the John guys, and the Brian guys, and the Charles guys, and the Davis guys. But I'm talking more about an attitude of heart that imbibes that same divisive philosophy that may not work itself out in actual groups, 
It may not even work itself out in actual words. It may not work itself out on the city. Someone starts up a new group, the John group. But it's just that attitude of heart. And God's a heart, heart attitude sort of God. That's the root of where everything lies. I'm not talking more about an attitude of heart that imbibes the same divisive philosophy that may not work itself out in actual groups, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking more about an attitude that comes along and just may still be lurking beneath the surface of the heart. And that's what makes division so sneaky. See, no one comes through that back door with a big banner going, rally to me, the divide, no, I mean, no one does that. No one comes in and is like, well, today I'm going to initiate division in the church, would you care to join me? No, no one does that. It's just sort of that sneakiness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin is what the Hebrews calls it. Where it just sort of works in, and then there's that attitude of the heart that just sort of lands. And then you don't run that attitude against the grid of the gospel. And that heart attitude takes root, grows, blooms, produces fruit. Then others start coming and eating of that fruit of division, eating of that fruit of division, and on it goes, and it spreads. That's the sneakiness of division. And at times it can be sneaky and very unintentional, but we still find it present. We find that, that idea, that, that sneakiness still being present, finding harbor in our hearts. It's this hard attitude that comes along and says, you know what? It's all going to be well now that the lead elder is here. I mean, that's, that's subtle, but it's along the same lines. It's that kind of attitude that comes along and is like, man, you know what? Before the lead elder guy got here, the church is pretty lame. But now that he's here, this thing is going to take off. And in a way, that hard attitude is, well, I'm a lead elder guy. Or it's the thought of, man, I sure wish the other elders are running this thing like it was back in the day. Why do we even have this lead elder? There might be people somewhere, that kind of hard attitude. Like, man, you know what? Now the new guy's here, I really don't like what's going on. I wish it was like back it was in the old way. Again, that's, that's a hard attitude of division. Or it could even be that little twinge of the heart that says, man, I wish the former leader was here. Forget the new guy, forget the lay elders. Man, I just sort of long for the days that the former guy was here. And see, we don't express that with words, and I'm not even, I'm not even proposing that anyone is thinking this way. But what I am proposing is that the enemy would love for us to start thinking that way. That we need to remain vigilant as we travel this road going forward in 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18. As we seek to be a people coming together going unity with the Father through the Son. My desire is to have unity with these brothers. The enemy would love to sink that ship. And we have to guard ourselves against that kind of hard attitude that imbibes those seedlings of division. In some way, all of these hard attitudes expose an allegiance to someone else other than Christ. See, Delta isn't to be a multi-headed body. It isn't even to be a single-headed body if that single head is me or anyone else. Like, it's, it's not to be me at the center, right? Do we see this? It's not to be the lay elders at the center. It's to be Jesus at the center. Delta is to be a Christ-headed body. I can't be the center, your hope can't be in the lay elders. This is holding allegiance that is off-center. Christ has to be the center of Delta Church. And here's the good, this is why I'm encouraged, why I don't really think this attitude is here. Is because for the two and a half, three years that you guys were looking 
without that lead guy in the center, you guys didn't sink. Like, I know churches better staffed and better equipped than me and you guys. And that's not to put you guys down. It's not to put me down. But there's churches who are flowing, man, pumping on all six cylinders to where the lead guy rolls out, the church explodes, disintegrates, division everywhere. Why? Because who was at the center of that thing? The lead guy. It wasn't Jesus at the center. See, that's the beauty of why, like, I don't want to be preaching here every Sunday. Because if you guys come just to hear what I have to say, then I ask Charles to come preach next week, and you guys are like, well, Charles is preaching. And then there's like, you know, half the people show up. Then that shows it's betraying a heart that you have an allegiance to me and not to the word. See, what we don't do is come and show up so we can preach the word and go, man, I really like the way John says that. I really loathe the way Charles says that. It's whoever is saying it, we come and we rejoice because it's the scriptures being proclaimed. And so that's just sort of the way this all works out. That's that's how we have to be vigilant going forward. And that's the way you can sort of crunch and process these things in your mind. And that's why I encourage, because you guys worked together, I think in unity, I sense in unity that when the lead guy had to step down, And there was just that season, a pretty long season, two and a half, three years, of no lead guy in the center, just a rotation of able-bodied men that God had called to come and say, man, let's let's just make much of Jesus. Let's let's look at Jesus. Let's see how Jesus calls us to. You guys survive, and I think that's God's good grace to this church, a blessing that flows from the the fount of God, the the faithful God, I would call on in verse 9. Now, that's one way I think that this can work itself out in our church. The other way, and then we'll wrap it up and be done. Now, the other way that our teaching this morning could play out in our local church could be seen in the danger of drifting from a unified vision. Remember from the text that we are seeing a bit of a logical progression that Paul is calling the Corinthians to remember. They were apart from Christ. God calls them unto salvation. Now they have a gospel identity. And rooted in that gospel identity, there's a call to action. They've got mission. So there's gospel identity, which leads to mission. God equips for the mission. They lack no thing for the mission. They've got the necessary spiritual gifts for the mission. Then Paul holds up the gospel at the center and states that their identity, our identity, their mission, and our mission ought to be marked by unity among the body of believers. Identity, mission, unity. And there is a sense in which we all have one common mission, right? Like all of us have a common mission to no matter whether we eat or drink, we do it all to the glory of God. We've all got that common mission to no matter what we do, we make much of Jesus Christ in every single thing that we do. We are to make much of God in all we think, say, and do. But there's also a sense in which we are all called to various missions that others may not be called to because of the spiritual gifts God has given us coupled with our personalities and so on, right? So God has called me. I have a gospel identity. The spiritual gifts that God has given me are administration, thinking, leading, teaching, preaching. But you guys aren't necessarily called to that. You might have a different mission, Maybe the spiritual gifting God has given you is, I am awesome at the soundboard. Like, sound just is my, my deal. God is 
equipped me and gifted me for that. And so that's your mission. Or maybe the way you serve Christ the most is by holding little babies really well. And so your gifting and your equipping is to be down in the nest or to be in the herd or to run a vacuum or to administrate or to count money. These are all spiritual giftings. So I have a mission rooted in my gospel identity. You have a mission rooted in your gospel identity. There is a sense where we're all on this together because in all of these various ways, we are to make much of Jesus Christ and all we eat drink no matter what we do, but there is a sense in which we all have our own many missions. So the question that we have to ask is, what happens when you have a bunch of people marked by their gospel identity called to various missions congregating in one church? Like one way it could play out is this. Well, yes, we're just sort of a loosely gathered conglomeration of people. I have a gospel identity, you do, and you do, and you do. You have your own various little mission. You have your own various little mission. You have your own various little mission. And yeah, we're sort of loosely congregating here together as Delta Church. But like there's no big overarching thrust that says, here's the guidelines. Here's the boundaries. We, as a body of believers here in Delta Church, this is our vision. This is where we're going. And so where, no matter where you find yourself, your gifting, your calling, your equipping, Rooted in your gospel identity, we're going to channel this with this vision this way. One way that could wrongly work itself out and go, well, you know, forget the vision. I'm doing my own deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Delta Church, my church. I, I show up on the large group gathering on Sunday mornings. I do some of my own st- stuff with them, but basically I'm just sort of running my own game. Sort of like a rogue Christian. Like, I'm not just sort of doing my own deal. Why? Because, well, I mean, this is what I'm called to, right? John, you're calling me to live out my mission and my identity to the glory of God. Yes, I am saying that. But there is a way that we can make much of God together through unity, unifying together, and the glue, the bond that comes and bonds us together because each of us have our own various little giftings and callings and equippings. So how do we come together and how do we make much of Jesus together? How do we move forward together, unified, not divided? And I think it's run through this grid of vision. Where are we going? This idea of vision is an idea of imagination, To have a vision is to say, I'm standing here right now in this place, in this time, and I'm turning my eyes and I'm looking to the future going, I see what could be down the road. And because I see what could be down the road, I can imagine a future where something takes place. Therefore, because I want that to happen, this vision informs what I am to do now. And we as a church have a vision. We have a vision. This is horrible preaching, but I skipped a really big part, so I need to go back and say this before I get somewhere else, okay? (laughs) Um, Pardon me, preaching professor. Um, So how are we to hold this together and not be a bunch of people doing their own loosely connected things? I want to say this because it counteracts wrong thinking. First, we have to remember that Paul calls us to unity, not uniformity, right? It's unity, not uniformity. The idea of uniformity is that every person must be the same in all cases at all times. So that might be me walking through the door going, gifting, administration, teaching, preaching, leading. 
What? You're called to a gift of helps? I don't care. You need to be like me. You're called to serve in the nest? No, you need to be up here. You're called to count money? No, you're not. You're called to be like me. That's uniformity, and that's wrong. We're not called to uniformity. We're called to unity. Unity recognizes you're different, and 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 you're different. And in our differences, we come together and unify as a body of believers. The idea of unity is one of various and oftentimes different parts being joined together as a whole. Paul loved this idea of unity among the body, and quite often he used the phrase, the body of Christ, as his favorite metaphor to express express this truth as it relates to the church. See, my body isn't made up of uniformity. I have a pinky finger, but this isn't a pinky, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't a pinky, this isn't a pinky, this isn't a pinky, this isn't a pinky finger, this is the pinky finger, right? My body's not made up of uniformity. My body's made up of unity. My body has various parts united with a common identity. This pinky finger has its own identity. This finger has its own identity. This elbow has its own identity. It's the Davis identity. It's unique. It has its own calling. The pinky finger does things that the elbow doesn't, but it's united under this one identity. This is mine, the Davis pinky, the Davis elbow. So there's various parts united with a common identity, the pinky finger, the elbow, the knee, called to various missions. The pinky finger does pinky finger work, and the elbow does elbow work, and the knee does knee work. And all this is flushing out their identity and mission together as a whole, all under the authority of the head, with the common vision, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all the glory of God. So I've got this vision. It comes from Christ himself. I am to live my life to the glory of God. So what I do is... I don't actually do this, but this is figurative. I can get up in the morning and go, okay, pinky, we're going to do this for the glory of God today. Elbow, glory of God. Knee, glory of God. Mind, glory of God. Heart, glory of God. Lungs, let's, let's, let's suck in some oxygen here today for the glory of God. And that's how my Davis identity informs all these various loose parts underneath the head, working itself out in a vision. And just as this is true of our physical bodies, Paul's desire is that we see this to be true of the local body of believers, the church. Delta is made up of various people, marked by a common gospel identity, called and equipped with spiritual gifts to live out various missions, some to preach, some to teach, some to serve, some to give, some for healing, some for helping, some for administration. And all this flushing out our identities and missions together as a whole, all under the authority of our head, Jesus Christ, with a common vision. See, we need to have unity and vi- vision. I mean, just think how awful this would be. Someone comes together and goes, okay, I am, uh, I feel called like God is calling me to be a community group leader. Okay, so we run you through the grid. Yes, you, you meet the qualifications, biblical qualifications. We sense that God is giving you this calling, and then we send you out on your way. Month goes by, two months goes by, three months goes by. Next thing you know, there's some division, there's some discord going on. So you you go and talk. Me and the pastor community groups go. Hey man, like what's going on? Like there's just a lot of discord going on in your group, and you guys are actually doing the exact opposite of everything that we've asked you to do. It's like, don't you know what our, our vision is? Our, our vision as Delta Church is we exist to glorify God by proclaiming the supremacy of His gospel. And that community group leader go, oh. I thought the division was I existed to make much of me so that I'd have a little group of followers to follow me. 
That's a pretty extreme example, but it makes the point. That guy had gifts, skills, equipped, able to do it, ran into the grid. But if you don't have people on the same vision page, they go off and do their own thing, then you have just all these little loose flying things in orbit, banging and smashing each other, and division comes, and, and chaos comes, and quarreling comes. See, Delta has a common vision. We exist to glorify God by proclaiming the supremacy of his gospel. And the hope is that if I am doing my job well and helping to lead the lay elders well, as we are looking to lead you guys well, is that this vision, our goal is to go. You know, we believe beyond shadow of a doubt that this vision isn't made up by us. This is a vision that comes from Jesus. We believe Jesus has called us to this vision to glorify God by making his gospel supreme. And our goal is to see this baby bleed out into every area of life. Go and make the gospel supreme in the nest. Go and make the gospel supreme in your community group. Go and make your gospel supreme as you play the piano. Go and make the gospel supreme as you adjust a volume knob, as you click a side, as you bring donuts, as you take out the trash, as you set up signs, as you love on kids, as you change little dirty diapers, as you draw with crowns down in the herd, no matter what you do, our goal is to go, we believe Jesus has given us this vision, and what we're doing is asking you guys to come on board. And again, this isn't presupposing that all of you guys are out there. What I'm saying is this is a way that division can creep into the church when you have someone who shows up and goes, yeah, I know what the vision is, but forget that, I'm doing my own deal. It's not healthy. Or you have someone shows up and go, I, I don't even know what the vision is. And then we just send that person off to do their own thing. That's unhealthy. To have your cake and eat it too, the best case scenario is for people to come on board and go, you know, I, I've got this skill. I've got, I've got this gifting. God has given this to me. What the division is to, the vision is to make much of Jesus, to proclaim his gospel supreme and everything. I can do that. I can run a vacuum like nobody's business. Let me do this to the glory of God and make the gospel supreme by making this look as clean as possible. To teach the gospel with clarity in the community group. To change a dirty diaper par excellence. That's a, that's a, that's a spiritual gift, man, I'm telling you. See, our hope in going forward for 2014 as we're just looking to make much of large group gatherings and community groups to establish fast foundation is to say, brothers, sisters, please pray for us as we're seeking to go there. To, pray, to challenge you guys with this question, how are you, with your gospel identity and your peculiar gifting, how are you, with your gospel identity and your peculiar gifting, that mission that God has given you, Yes, you're, you're part of that large mission. All of us have this, this key idea mission of just what it looks like to be people who spread the gospel and live, live lives of holiness. But I'm talking about that peculiar thing that God has gifted you, rooted in your gospel identity. How do you come on board with Delta, living a life of unity in this body, serving the head, Jesus Christ, by proclaiming the supremacy of his gospel? And that's a question only you can answer. There's a myriad of ways that you guys can plug in, serve, myriads. Constantly looking for people. So that's the challenge I give you. Pray. I mean, Jesus will answer that prayer. Maybe you don't want to pray. But I challenge you to pray. How do I, God, peculiar gifting, how do I make much of Jesus proclaiming the gospel as supreme in Delta? Help me. God will hear that. Jesus will answer that.
God, you are good in our desires that uh, you've been made much of this morning. Desires that we walk out of here sort of feeling like we've just been browbeat and guilty. But truly our desires that we walk out of here going, man, you know what, God is so good. Christ is so great. I am lacking no good thing. I'm lacking no spiritual gift. God, I believe, I sense that you've called me to be a member, to congregate with this church. God, help me. How can I be on board, underneath this glue, this vision, living a life that makes much of you? God, I pray that you'd answer that prayer. I pray that you would call people out to new things. I pray that you would raise up within our midst people motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ to give of themselves, to give of their time, to give of their money, to give of their life to advance the good name of Jesus. In Christ's name I pray.